0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. And now I'd like to introduce our first guest speaker, President of the National Academy of Science, Dr. Ralph Cicero. This is an outline of what I'm going to go th- through quickly. I want to go through, after discussing some of Roger's earlier, earliest contributions on climate change and how we all got st- started to recognize the, the growing seriousness of the situation. I want to talk about the reality of the greenhouse effect and greenhouse gases, both from a theoretical and a physical evidence point of view, and then the linkage with carbon dioxide from fossil fuels and energy usage. I'll mention just briefly some of the data that, that show us evidence that these effects are real, uh, pretty much planetary and gro- growing. Then I'll say a few words about mitigation and adaptation strategies, what it all means. I'm going to focus for a few minutes on the idea of intentionally engineering the planet to combat climate change, not because it's the most serious thing we can talk about today, but it's the last topic where I was alone with Roger in uh, April 30th, 1991, 29th and 30th, spent several hours with him talking about these ideas, and I will not attempt to speak for him. I'll only raise the, the subject. Uh, it's a, it's another one of the topics where we could use him today. And finally, I'll stop with some comments about rules for scientists. Well, obviously, this graph is no news to Scripps. It's Scripps data. It's a record of the monthly averages. Each black dot is a monthly average of carbon dioxide measured in the air at Mauna Loa in black and South Pole in red. Since Dave Keeling started the work in the fall of 1957, early 58, through to, I think these data stop in October of 2008 as posted by Ralph Keeling and his group. Without these data, there wouldn't be anywhere near the basis of concern and reality we have, and they've showed us so much, and of course Roger Revelle had a role in helping Dave to start, giving him encouragement, helping him to interpret, and getting other people involved and in many other ways that, that we know. I'm going to show this graph again later, but you see two major features. The underlying trend, that is the the fact that the the average amount continues to rise and that the uh, annual cycles reveal in the, for example, well in both hemispheres there's a peak in the uh, fall and winter seasons when respiration and decay of organic matter gives off carbon dioxide and then uh, a a drawdown in the following spring and summer, when when photosynthesis takes uh, more carbon dioxide out of the air than is being returned by photosynthesis by, by respiration and decay, so there are two major factors here. Now we know from some ice cores that we actually know the amount of carbon dioxide that was in the atmosphere in earlier years. In fact, going back around 600,000 years now, from some dated ice cores in Antarctica that are extremely uh, deep. And old. There are some fast accumulation sites in both Greenland and Antarctica where scientists have been able to interrogate dated layers of snow and ice and fern over the last century or so. And what's clear is that the at the end of the 19th century, say 1880 or so, the amounts of carbon dioxide were somewhere down here, 270 to 280 parts per million. Well, it's a little trite to observe this, but I think it's dramatic, that if you start from Roger Revelle's birthday year until now, it's 100 years and it's 100 parts per million because our best estimate of the global average carbon dioxide amount in the atmosphere in the year 1909 would be about 285, 286, 287, 288 parts per million, plus or minus a couple. And the amount present now is about 387, so it's 100 parts per million in 100 years. As I say, it's trite, but it's another measure of the drama of what's going on here. So this record of carbon dioxide increase is very, very important because it demonstrates a global impact of of human activities, and Roger and any number of other scientists have contributed to our conclusive evidence base that this increase is being uh, driven by human activities, principally the burning of fossil fuels. Hans Seuss, here at Scripps and on the upper campus, worked with Roger in obtaining early isotopic evidence from oceanic CO2 and atmospheric CO2 that the ratio showed that fossil fuels was causing the increase. And since then, any number of other lines of evidence have shown that the increase is driven by human activities. This is not a natural phenomenon. In fact, the ice core data that I mentioned earlier show that over the last three or four ice ages and intermediate warming times, carbon dioxide amounts have never reached this level. They've always been between 180 and 280 parts per million. In other words, this modern record is completely uh, outside of that range, and there are many other lines of, of evidence. The first uh, National Academy of Sciences report on the subject was uh, 1979 and Roger had a role in this which I will mention Uh, By today's standards it was quaint. I have the entire report with me and it's very short You can see that it was the report of an ad hoc study group conducted at Woods Hole over a five day period Uh, Mike Green who runs a lot of these kinds of studies back at our academies in Washington will recognize that This was a very brief uh, consultation, but the major conclusion of the report was very much in keeping with what we know today. There's not much different. The principal uncertainty identified by this committee was the role of the oceans, the role of the oceans in taking up the excess heat trapped near the Earth's surface by the greenhouse effect, and they identified and gave a lot of the text in the report over to recognizing this uncertainty, trying to figure out what to do with it. I said that Roger had a role. The report was actually requested by the Climate Research Board at the Academy, which at the time was chaired by Vern Sumi, and Roger was a member of that board. Then in 1983, 82-83, the Academy took on another much uh, more more intense report. I see Ed Freeman smiling. I think he remembers this one. This was, a, as I say, a much a deeper report. It took a lot longer to do. Uh, Roger had a major role in this report. Uh, he was a member of the, uh, the writing committee. It was chaired by Bill Nirenberg, who I guess was director number seven. Is that right? If I have my sequence right. And Roger, and to show you a couple of the things that Roger did, uh, there was a section 3.5 on one of the most dramatic potential positive destabilizing feedbacks in the climate system. Uh, rather large amounts of uh, methane trapped in the form of uh, hydrates uh, in continental slope sediments and their potential for uh, being released under the warming caused by increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide. Roger's estimates of the amount of methane trapped there were uh, probably higher than anybody else had made up to that time, so this uh, revealed enormous potential of this destabilizing feedback. Roger also was the lead author in Chapter 8, which also focused on one of our major issues of concern, namely, what are the prospects for rises in sea level, again, resulting from the climate change driven by carbon dioxide. So Roger had a major role in this report, and a year before it was released, there was a quote in the Washington Post, which I found in our files, where I'll read it to you. It says, It Roger said, it now appears inevitable that atmospheric carbon dioxide level will double sometime in the next century, referring to this century, of course, Dr. Roger Revelle of the University of California at San Diego said at the annual AAAS meeting, Revelle is one of the world's leading geophysicists. Uh, This shows that he was uh, getting intensely involved in the issue and was beginning to speak out about some future prospects. Now I want to switch to the physical basis of what we're talking about. We have both a strong theoretical and observational evidence for the climate change that is underway now and the principles from which we can deduce what's going to happen in the future. This, car- this uh, slide is obviously just a cartoon. In fact, it's taken from a paper of Ram, Ramanathan, in 1988 or 89, It was a Physics Today cover article where I've changed a few of the numbers and inserted a few other things but the gist of it is the climate to a very good approximation is driven by the energy balance of the planet and that budget is in turn dominated by incoming energy from the Sun in the form of visible light uh, which is transmitted essentially uninterrupted by the atmosphere except for black carbon as a matter of fact the visible light penetrates the atmosphere very effectively and The Earth receives on an annual average day and night about 340 watts per square meter of sunlight. About 30% of that is directly reflected back out to space from the tops of white surfaces like clouds and uh, uh, snow and ice on the surface. About 237, therefore, is absorbed by the Earth's system and the atmosphere, and in balance, the Earth radiates in the infrared nearly 400 watts per square meter. Uh, Much of that is re-radiated back to the earth and dissipated, but about 237 watts is re-radiated back out to earth in the form of infrared radiation, uh, largely through what's called the atmospheric window region from about six micrometers wavelength to about 16. Uh, These three exemplary greenhouse gases are included to show that the outgoing infrared radiation interacts with these greenhouse gases, and that, of course, is the basis of our concern because the spectroscopy of all of these polyatomic molecules can be very easily or at least very well measured in the laboratory so that we can calculate from first principles exactly how the outgoing infrared radiation interacts with these gases, whether they be layered in the air or uniformly distributed, so we can calculate an energy balance. Uh, When we do that, uh, and I'll go through this very quickly, it's a very simple equation. If you ignore the time rate of change and simply say in steady state we have an energy balance, then the amount of sunlight multiplied by the uh, one minus the reflectivity of the planet, that is the fraction of sunlight absorbed, uh, equals the outgoing radiation from the planet in the infrared. Now the Earth radiates roughly as a black body, Uh, Planck function which is a function of wavelength and temperature if you integrate over all wavelengths you end up with the Stefan-Boltzmann law Which is that the planet radiates according to some constant times an effective temperature to the fourth power Well, we know the sunlight. We can measure it. We know the reflectivity of the planet. It's been measured So we should be able to calculate the temperature of the planet when we do that for Mars. We get the right answer there's small day-night variations as, as Mars rotates But we got the right answer. It's uh, well below room temperature. It's about minus 30 degrees centigrade, 245 Kelvin. The answer is correct. Uh, If we do the same calculation for Earth, we calculate that the Earth is at a temperature of minus 18 degrees, in other words, frozen solid. The Earth is not frozen solid, therefore we know that there's something wrong with the calculation. And what's wrong is that... We cannot do such a simple calculation. This is indirect evidence that there is a greenhouse effect of the gases and the clouds and that we, when we repeat the calculation with a greenhouse effect calculated, we in fact calculate what the right temperature is. If we do the same calculation for Venus, we underestimate the temperature of Venus by several hundred degrees because Venus has a very thick atmosphere with much carbon dioxide and a very intense greenhouse effect. Okay, that's some of the evidence. We go back then to what's happening and say, well, if we're getting better at these calculations, we should be able to to calculate what is the difference in the planetary energy balance due to this unnatural amount of carbon dioxide that's being added. But to do that, let me just uh, give a little bit of basis for where all the carbon dioxide is coming from on this scale of a couple of hundred years time it shows the total release rate of carbon dioxide in the form of carbon every year measured in billions or millions of tons of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide so that at the beginning of the 20th century we were on this scale of about uh, 500 million metric tons of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide being released every year. In the year 2005 2006, 2007, we reached 8 billion metric tons of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide emitted each year from the burning of petroleum and petroleum products, natural gas, the flaring of natural gas, cement production being 2, 3, 4 percent down here. So now, if you compare this amount of carbon dioxide released every year to the amount that's observed, as uh, Dave Keeling noticed many years ago, The two do not compare exactly equally. There is uh, the amount of CO2 observed to increase every year is actually smaller than the amount that's inserted into the atmosphere every year, with the difference being interpreted as uptake by the oceans and possibly by terrestrial uh, biota and soils. Nonetheless, to within a factor of two, in fact better than a factor of two, these numbers are equal. Uh, Just to give you a feeling for the numbers, just looking at the United States carbon dioxide emissions, United States only, from energy consumption, of course there is essentially no emission of carbon dioxide from hydroelectric power, from biomass burning, because although the carbon dioxide is released by burning of biomass wood, it's on an annual basis essentially zero net exchange, the use of geothermal energy, zero wind power, solar nuclear, essentially zero, but the burning of fossil fuels in the United States, uh, I've switched units now, I've gone back to uh, weight of carbon dioxide itself, it's about 6 billion tons of carbon dioxide released annually by the United States, Uh, about half, no, about 40% from petroleum usage, uh, a little bit less from coal and the rest from natural gas. You can look at the same figures, energy consumption in the United States, broken down by function or usage rather than the fuel. We release a a great deal of carbon dioxide, 2.3, two and a third billion metric tons a year, carbon dioxide just from generating electricity from coal and natural gas, and then uh, all other industrial uses, about half that, light-duty vehicles, automobiles, freight, and so forth, aircraft adding up to the same figure of a little bit less than 6 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year. So when you look at the similar figures globally, and you realize that 85% of all energy usage on the planet is driven by fossil fuels, you realize how these extremely large increases in carbon dioxide are occurring and why they will continue to occur. Now, the, an issue that Ed Freeman alluded to earlier is that carbon dioxide, as important as it is and as uh, profoundly how much momentum is behind the system. It's true there are also other impacts driving the planetary energy balance and therefore climate we call radiative forcing from the well-mixed greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide itself results in trapping about an extra one and a half, one point six 1.6 watts per meter squared in the lower atmosphere closest to the surface. Steady state. Methane is about a third of that amount, or fourth. Nitrous oxide, shown by Ray Weiss here at Scripps, to have a a rate of increase very similar to that of carbon dioxide with a history that's very similar to that of carbon dioxide. It's a stronger greenhouse gas, but it's present at about one one-thousandth the amount of carbon dioxide, and then any number of other greenhouse gases, and I've not shown here the black carbon amounts. But if you add these numbers up, comes up to be about 2.6 watts per meter squared, which, if you remember the cartoon, is more than 1% of the solar constant. This is a colossal change to the Earth's planetary energy budget in a human lifetime. There may have been similar changes in the past due to the evolution of the sun as a star over uh, stellar history, but over time scales that are perhaps 100,000 times longer. So this is a colossal change to the Earth's energy budget. Okay, what's happening? Well, we now have uh, reasonably good records of air temperatures at the surface of the Earth over land and ocean, and what's shown here in the red curve is a five-year running average. The black dots are essentially annual averages, but a five-year running average, and these data are from Jim Hansen's GISS, uh, Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York City, working of the records, Uh, several hundred million data points go into a graph like this, and it shows a, a warming of the planet between about 1900. This is a proper global average now from about 1900 to about 1940, 1945, then a cooling from 1940 to the late 70s, and then a very strong upward movement. You'll notice that 2008 was a relatively cool year compared to the previous five years, but still well above the average of what is the zero point here, the 1950 to 1980 average, which is defined as zero. So these are not temperatures. They are deviations from the average between the year 1950 and 1980. So this 30-year record is uh, pronounced enough, upward enough, and strange enough that there, in fact, is no other explanation at this time than the increased greenhouse effect due to the rates of increase of these greenhouse gases that I alluded to earlier. Uh, the warming is not uniform. This is a, a two-dimensional plot of the Earth's surface showing the anomaly, that is, the difference between the current temperature averaged over the year 2008 and the baseline period, and this one is simpler, similar, but with the results only through 2007 you can see on this false color scale that the biggest warmings have been seen in the Arctic, which by the way was predicted even in the earliest 1979 Academy report, and is predicted by all the first principle fluid dynamical models of today, although not as large as is actually being observed. So there's more warming in the Arctic regions, somewhat in the Antarctic, uh, certainly less over the oceans because of the heat capacity of the waters and so forth. And you can see that through 2008 the global mean anomaly is actually less because of the first nine, ten months of 2008 were so cool as a matter of fact. But that's to make the point that the warming is not uh, uniform. There is clear evidence of a positive feedback in the Arctic region because we cannot explain these warmings being as large as they are just from radiative energy balance. Let me switch to sea level rise. Many of you here Know about measurement of sea level very well. The record that was due to the tide gauges around the world over the 20th century was something like this with a lot of noise. It was very difficult to obtain a proper global average because of the geological differences of different ocean basins, but when one did the best he or she could, the record showed about a 17 a centimeter rise over 100 years or about 1.7 millimeters per year. Now the red part of the curve represents the modern era of uh, satellite geodesy and and ocean sensing from space, uh, namely the Topex and Jason and other missions showing now extending that curve as I did. It looks as if the red part joins pretty well. In fact, the trend that's observed by the modern instruments is clearer it is a proper global average, and it 's a little bit more it 's about twice as much as been, had been deduced from the tide gauge record. so the current best fit to the data over the last fifteen or eighteen years is three point three millimeters a year and I think it 's fair to say that no one knows for sure whether this represents an acceleration in the rate of sea level rise or simply a better determination and perhaps but no one really knows, but it's certainly going in the direction of an increase. Uh, There is a splendid set of satellite instruments uh, that are very high-tech. I wish I had time to discuss the the interferometry involved, but it's very high-tech measurements sensing minor perturbations of the Earth's gravitational field as the satellites orbit the Earth, and as they go over large uh, ice masses in Greenland, Over enough period of time, the instruments have been able to deduce a total mass loss over Greenland, and these data are from Isabella Villaconia, who is at UC Irvine, and John Warr. They have now extended the data. Uh, I've seen them, but I'm not allowed to speak about them yet. I hope that Isabella will publish them soon. But they show, in fact, a mass loss over Greenland. So those of you who have seen remote sensing photographs of Greenland who have seen the the ice shrink over Greenland, that's, that's clear and true. But this is a different dimension. This shows mass loss. So that it's not just an aerial extent that's decreasing. And it's not just the extent of Arctic sea ice or Greenland continental ice. It's the actual mass loss. And these figures are, are corroborated rather well by satellite altimetry measuring the vertical extent of the ice over Greenland and also parts of Antarctica. So this is new, strong, physical evidence that climate change is happening in in major ways. Now, I'll go back to the temperature record because this 30-year period, which I said was different in that we cannot explain this excursion from the baseline in any other way than this human-caused forcing, and it's been relatively monotonic. Of course, 1998 was the super El Nino year. 2008 was a La Nina year. Uh, I wish I had time to talk more about 2008, but we don't have time today. But that 30-year period was different for another reason. It's the only 30-year period in human history where we've measured the output of the sun well enough and with enough precision to know that the output of the sun did not cause that change. This number, as you will see, is exactly 4 times 342. It's a geometric effect. But the, the incidence of sunlight at Earth orbit over the past two solar cycles has been just that. It's been cyclic. It's a periodic function with a peak-to-peak amplitude of 0.1%. This graph, it's from Judith uh, Lean, uh, uh, who's a physicist at the United States Naval Research Lab, and Klaus Freilich, her, her colleague in Switzerland. They've continued the data. I have more with me. But what it shows is, first of all, If you wanted to theorize that the sun was causing this climate change, it's uh, very difficult for you to say that anymore because the measurements tell you it isn't. Secondly, the variation in the sunlight is a tenth of a percent, and it's periodic, repetitious. The greenhouse effect rate of forcing is uh, 20 times larger, sorry, 10 times larger, 11 times larger, persistent and growing, not periodic. So there is a strong theoretical and physical basis for saying that climate is changing. Let's turn to the future a little bit. I want to use some data on total world energy consumption from 1970 through the current year and then future predictions, projections. Uh, It's broken down. Now, these units are British thermal units. As a scientist, I'm embarrassed, but that's what our United States Department of Energy uses. (laughs) The total world energy usage in the year two. 1970 was 207 quadrillion BTUs. That figure doubled to about 415 in the year uh, 2002, so there was a doubling of world energy usage in about 32 years. That's not surprising. That's about 2.2% per year. Uh, What's projected by the year in the next 20 years is a further increase of about 75% from where we are now, But what's different is that the energy usage shown in blue is that from mature market economies such as the United States, Japan, Western Europe, Canada, and so forth, and the red portion of the bar is transitional and emerging economies. We actually had to change the the definition of transitional and emerging economies during this period, but the future growth is driven by transitional and emerging economies such as China and India, projected to be about 3% per year over the next 20 years, and countries like our own were projecting maybe 1% per year energy growth, unless we do better at energy efficiency and so forth. Well, let me just give you a a better example where the rubber meets the road, just looking at one dimension of this energy usage. The increase in coal-fired electric power in several countries, I, I apologize, these numbers are a little displaced, But in the year 2003 in the United States, we had about 300 gigawatts of electricity uh, capacity from coal-fired power plants, and that's projected to increase by about 50% to the year 2030 to 450 gigawatts of electricity. In this 2006 projection from a very good data source, this is a semi-independent part of the Department of Energy called the uh, Energy Information Agency. In 2006, their projection was that China would essentially triple its coal-fired power plant uh, capability from 240 to 780 gigawatts, India would go, and the world would essentially double. But uh, I noticed there were some figures wrong, and I contacted EIA, and in 2008 they did an update based on what is already happening. The updated projection for China in the year 2010 is no longer 348, it's 478. The updated projection for 2020 is now 750 compared to 530, and for the year 2030, it's a uh, 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 1,000 gigawatts of electricity powered by coal-fired power plants in China. And Ed uh, Freeman mentioned earlier that there's some evidence that the CO2 emissions have exceeded those of the IPCC range, and that is true, and this is one of the reasons. Well, what does it all mean? And this is something that... Uh, uh, Roger and Hans Seuss and Dave Keeling and others began to work on and over the past several decades, uh, although this is a cartoon the numbers are pretty well substantiated, the judgments are not I, I'll just mention what they are, but it's you can write down the, the differential equations, but if you want a visual image, it's like filling a bathtub with water where the input spout is about, as I would said, 8 gigatons of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide each year And the drainage capacity of the bathtub, the absorption, the natural absorption capability is only about three, about two billion or a little bit more gigatons of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide going into the world's oceans each year, a little bit less than one going into land surfaces. So the difference, what is labeled here by my Japanese colleagues who gave me this slide, 7.2 minus 3.1, the difference is that the bathtub is filling up at a little bit more than four gigatons of carbon a year. So that at some point, the bathtub level will have risen from pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide to current levels to some level which people will have to judge or might judge as being dangerous. Uh, in fact, the as I said, the fossil fuel emission is now 10% higher than this. It's about eight, and we can we're deducing that the net loss of carbon dioxide from the world's terrestrial biosphere is about two billion uh, tons of carbon as the form of carbon dioxide a year, so that this anthropogenic input is more like 10 compared to a natural absorption capability of 3. So if we had a goal of wanting to hold carbon dioxide amounts constant in the atmosphere, it's not a question of holding our emissions constant. It would force us to cut the emissions by two-thirds or three-quarters if we just want to hold carbon dioxide amounts constant. So that may be counterintuitive, but you can get there either with differential equations or with a bathtub image. You get the same answer. <laughs> okay, so what? What does it all mean? Well, as we try to assess, and this is one of the roles for scientists, when do we get into trouble? Do we get into trouble? I think the two dominant concerns are if the rates of change are greater than those that can be accommodated by human society and natural systems, there's, there's danger Or if the changes are irreversible, such as large ice losses and sea level rise, which would be irreversible over any reasonable time scale, or the loss of uh, biodiversity. Uh, Aldo Leopold, who was a famous ecologist, coined a phrase which I liked. He said, and those of you who used to rebuild watches or like to tune your own cars will like this, he said, the first rule for successful tinkering is to save all the parts. And and certainly, the loss of biodiversity is something that should be taken seriously, even if we do not understand all the mechanisms. Okay, so we enter the realm, then, of climate change mitigation. And I would define mitigation as being an action to reduce the pace and amount of climate change caused by humans. And the goal of adaptation would be to reduce the adverse impacts on human well-being from climate changes that do occur. So mitigation is to reduce the amount of change itself. Adaptation is to reduce the impacts of the change. Let me give you one example, which is a little bit detailed, but it's rather dramatic. In the summer of 2003, there was a massive heat wave in Western Europe. And afterwards, all of us were shocked at the number of documented additional deaths that occurred in Paris and surroundings in July and August. This graph looks like a spaghetti chart, shows historical data of temperature uh, anomalies, that is differences from average, in July and August in this little grid square of Western Europe. And Paris is included in here with a false color chart. The data were put together by one of the world's best uh, research centers, the Hadley Center in England, uh, published in Nature. And then they did a lot of uh, model calculations with different amounts of variability showing ranges. And some of these are actually observed ranges. This asterisk shows the temperature anomaly that was so dangerous over a six- or eight-week period in that part of Western Europe. The the temperature was a couple of degrees centigrade above the the noise level, and it was judged to to be uh, before human-induced climate change started. That would have been an event with a statistical chance of about one in every 300 years. The Climate change that's already occurred brought this into about a one out of 50 or one out of 60 event, and the projected climate change by the year 2040 or so will make this a one out of every two-year event. Now, there's a question. How well can we adapt to this kind of projected climate change, given the causes of those extra deaths in an aging society? Proper hydration of people, air conditioning, which, of course, takes more electricity, and so forth. But it raises one of the challenges of adaptation, at least in some of our minds. I want to close with some comments on geoengineering because, as I said, it's not something that I'm proposing. It's not the most important topic today. But it's coming back uh, partly due to Paul Crutzen, who, of course, is on your faculty here at Scripps, who brought back an idea that had first been proposed by uh, the Russian scientists in the early and mid-'70s, namely of uh, seeding the atmosphere, intentionally injecting enough sulfur into the high atmosphere, where the residence time is long enough that the sulfur would survive, creating reflecting particles which could if placed well enough and enough of them, could reflect enough sunlight back to space to cause a cooling effect at the surface, just like an explosive volcano does. Well, there are many other ideas for intentionally engineering the climate. One of them Uh, proposed by Ed Teller amongst other people and re-examined in great scientific and quantitative calculations by one of the world's best telescope designers and optical instrumentation people, Roger Angel, would be to replace shading and reflecting material at a distant orbit from Earth although Roger shows why it is uh, out of the question at this time. But there was another idea that was floated around 1990 by the Oceanographer John Martin, which I discussed in great length with Roger Revelle and with Johnny Canales in 1990 and 91. I wanted to ask them what the law of the sea and other international treaties would say about people who might like to fertilize parts of the ocean with massive amounts of iron to attempt to uh, increase photosynthesis and draw organic matter out, create organic matter, and to then somehow sink that organic matter to the bottom of the ocean. That was the idea. Uh, But let me pursue this idea now. Uh, The idea of injecting sulfur into the Earth's stratosphere is that just like uh, volcanic sulfur, the oxidation processes in the air cause fine particles, some of them fine enough to stay aloft for a year or more in the stratosphere, that depending on your assumptions of global spreading, about 5 million tons a year of sulfur, Sulfur could cause, could counteract on a global average basis the radiative forcing of doubled CO2 at a cost of maybe $100 billion a year, perhaps less actually. These are just some of the parameters, uh, and I will not defend all of these calculations, but I can explain them. Uh, The motivations expressed by proponents of these ideas are the apparent inadequacy of our efforts so far to limit the emissions of greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and the hopes for some kind of low-cost engineering intervention. The concerns expressed by opponents are that there will undoubtedly be inadvertent side effects which are unknown and difficult to identify and quantify, that the very idea of talking about these interventions could give unwarranted encouragement that there is a technological fix that could decrease our commitment to mitigation efforts, and of course ocean acidification in any case would continue even if sulfur injections were successful. So what should we do under such a scenario? Well, I, I would submit that we should encourage and formalize the research. And what I mean by that is that the research should be peer-reviewed, it should be rigorous, it should be treated as normal science, uh, papers should state their principles, display all the equations and assumptions just like a normal scientific topic, and to suggest small-scale experiments when the, when the theory suggests that, that something might work. And in fact, there could even be peer-reviewed grant programs and vetting at scientific meetings. Uh, the ocean acidification issue, though, and there's a graph just outside this room showing the Scripps CO2 project evidence of increased ocean acidification in some locations due to the added amounts of carbon dioxide. This is just a fairly simple projection here with unknown biological effects. I just wanted to mention it as one major criticism of any sulfate injection method. But the approach to geoengineering then would be for scientists to define criteria and conditions for eventual experiments, that the experiment should be small scale at first at least, just like the iron fertilization injections were, And, and in fact, talking to Roger about this in 1991, he talked about what might be learned from such small-scale experiments from iron, and he turned out to be right. Those experiments have led to some very good science. They've also led to very little enthusiasm for actually trying the technique on large scale, that the team should be international because we would be playing around with the planetary environment, not just that of a nation there have to be mechanisms for public oversight even in small scale experiments and that i i proposed that the scientific community should withhold their participation and endorsement from any larger scale uh, experiments until appropriate conditions are met well let me cl- close then with saying what do what is expected of scientists in a situation now where after 50-some years of the Scripps record and all the other greenhouse gas measurements and what we've learned about climate change. Well, scientific communities behave pretty well. The first goal and role is to discover the problem and point out what the fundamental phenomena are, to try to quantify likely future course of the phenomena, to identify and analyze options to deal with it, to communicate with the public. I showed you one of Roger's quotes in the Washington Post, and the public's leaders and to educate a new generation and to iterate because probably it's the case that these problems and our responses will be complex enough that none of us will live long enough to see the, the final resolution so it is absolutely essential to involve new people at every stage. Just as examples, what happened here in this case was the detection of the increase of carbon dioxide to assess whether The causes were anthropogenic, which they were in this case, are in this case. To recognize the fundamental role of the greenhouse effect. To identify radiative forcing as a key quantity. It's something I worked on very laboriously in the 80s, led by Bob Dickinson, and we helped to figure that out. Uh, To quantify the likely future course of events. And, of course, to point out the links with fossil fuel usage so that people can get on with mitigation strategies. Well, in these roles for scientists, uh, great scientific expertise is needed. We heard a number of stories in the last day or so about how Roger was superb at not only seeing into problems himself and understanding, but involving other people who he thought were capable, even more capable than he himself was. At least that was his view. We need a broader societal awareness, and the ability to communicate are needed at least from some scientists, perhaps not all of us, but... Uh, We'd sure like to have another Carl Sagan. Roger Revelle possessed these capabilities, and he applied them very generously. And as succeeding generations move forward, uh, we and they remember him fondly and respectfully as we try to imitate him in some small way. Thank you.